Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So, this is going to be part two of the Rwanda podcast. Are we learning the wrong lessons from Rwanda? And it's going to be attempt two for me to record part two, because part one died in a sampling accident. Uh, it still exists, but I sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks, and it's deeply unpleasant to listen to. So uh, hopefully this will be better than that. We'll never know, because the original copies uh, were destroyed. It'll be the lost podcast. So where we left off was Paul Kagame and the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Forces, the Tutsis, who had been in exile in Uganda for 30 or 40 years have come in and they've ended the genocide in Rwanda. They've swept through the country in a hundred days. They've taken it over. The French have withdrawn and the Rwandan genocide is over, but this conflict is just beginning because as the, the conflict ends, Hundreds of thousands of refugees stream out of Rwanda. These are mostly Hutus, people who are afraid that they will be implicated in the genocide, people who are afraid of this incoming army, who have been told that this incoming army is going to take their land, do terrible things to them. They flee by the hundreds of thousands. They flee in all directions. They, f- they flee across multiple borders, but most of them wind up going to one of two places— Either they go to refugee camps in the south of of Rwanda that had been controlled by the French as part of Operation Turquoise. And if you'll remember, Operation Turquoise was this very controversial humanitarian intervention that the French undertook during the genocide to create a humanitarian safe space in the southern third of the country that many people accused them of effectively propping up the regime and the people who were carrying out the genocide. Those refugee camps where people went to flee the conflict, they're still there, and there are hundred, there are many, many, mostly Hutu refugees still in those camps. Most of the refugees, however, cross over into Zaire. Now, remember what I said about Eastern Zaire is that it's kind of the place you go where you ha- when you have nowhere else to go. That's where they go. That's where the Hutu genocidaires and many refugees who go with them go, and they set up these refugee camps across the border. Now, if you're Paul Kagame, you've just taken over the country and liberated it, but you are not safe by any means. The people who were fighting against you, the people who were exterminating your people, they're just right across the border. In some cases, they are within your your territory in these refugee camps that have been set up by the French in the humanitarian safe zone in the southern third of the country. And this is an untenable situation. And remember also... What a huge upheaval Rwanda has just gone through. This is a country of about 7 million people at the time of the genocide. 300 and some odd thousand Tutsis in exile who'd been living in Uganda have now swept into the country on, on the heels of the RPF. So you have a whole new population coming in. 800,000 mostly Tutsis, but also moderate Hutus have been killed And now, as many as 2 million refugees, mostly Hutu, have fled the country. So in a country of 7 million, that's an enormous upheaval. And and there's just a lot of fluidity and uncertainty. And an enormous amount of work is going to be needed to put the country back together again. So you have a political problem. You have a new government that is basically controlled by the minority. You have to have political reconciliation... You have an economic 
problem. The country has been devastated. And you have a security problem. You've got a, a massive refugee population. And within those refugees are people who carried out the genocide who would like nothing better than to continue carrying out the genocide and come back to power in Rwanda. And, and Paul Kagame cannot stand for this. The other thing is, how are you going to carry out reconciliation in a country where this many people were involved in the genocide? I mean, 800,000 people out of 7 million were slaughtered, mostly with machetes. And a huge percentage of the population was involved in this. And you see these problems develop almost immediately. Kagame and, and the RPF, as, as they try to consolidate order in the country, they try and set up these trials. They try and set up truth and reconciliation commissions. And, over, and this, this whole process takes years. But you see opportunism all over the place. Somebody will accuse their neighbor of having been involved in the genocide because they want their neighbor's land or they want their neighbor's job or they, they just don't like their neighbor. And so there's this kind of French Revolution-style j'accuse environment. Tens of thousands of people are thrown into prison. The prison cells themselves are so crowded that people sometimes suffocate to death in them. And and what are you going to do? How are you going to try all of these people? There's a, there's a single digit number of lawyers left in the whole country. Most of them have, have either fled or been killed. So how are you going to possibly dispense fair justice? It's an overwhelming problem. And how well the Rwandan government handled it, again, kind of depends. We talked about this in episode one. Um Kind of depends on if you speak French or if you speak English as you as your sort of mother tongue or or you know international language of choice. In general, French sources say that Kagame is a bloodthirsty tyrant who ruled the country by force and and basically killed and suppressed his his political dissidents. And reconciliation mostly consisted of throwing a lot of people in jail. Uh, a lot of English speaking uh, sources will uh, will paint him in a much kinder light and say that there was this real legitimate effort to engage in in local truth and reconciliation and forgiveness and trials and that sometimes Tutsis felt that that he was in fact being too lenient on Hutus it, it's it's amazing how disparate the narratives are in in how this goes but there's another problem here which is that Basically, there are no unbiased international sources because one of the fallouts of the genocide is that you have a permanent rivalry, basically, in, that's put in place to this day between the French government and the, uh, the RPF-led Rwandan government. Both sides basically accuse each other of having been involved in the genocide. The French accuse the... Uh, the RPF of having shot down the plane of the president, which is uh, of Rwanda, which is the incident that set off the genocide. They accuse the uh, the RPF of basically a second counter genocide uh, in uh, against Hutu refugees in Congo. Uh, but we're get, we're going to get there a little bit later. To this day, French diplomats will leak selectively pieces of UN reports about war crimes in in. Uh, in DRC in, in Congo, and they'll just leak the parts where it implicates militias that are loyal to 
the Rwandans as opposed to everybody else who's also committing war crimes. So this rivalry continues. For, for the Rwandans' part, they they accused several high-ranking uh, French officials, including former President Mitterrand, of uh, having actively supported the uh, the genocidaires. Uh, Kagame later outlawed the teaching of French in Rwandan schools, and in a real screw you to the French. Rwanda applied to and ultimately joined the British Commonwealth, becoming only the second non-British colony to ever do so. Meanwhile, almost everyone else feels this enormous sense of genocide guilt. Like, we stood by while this horrible thing happened, and the RPF stopped it. They were the ones who ended the genocide, and so they have an enormous amount of goodwill, which they proceed to squander over the course of the next eight to nine years, as we shall see. The first and and sort of telling sign that all was not going to be well in the post-genocide world is this incident that takes place uh, about a year afterwards on April 22nd, 1995, called the Cabejo Massacre. So one of the things that is highest on the Rwandan government priority list is to deal with the refugee problem and and these sort of cross-border attacks or the threat of cross-border incursions or, or just outright invasions by a reconstituted uh, force of Hutu genocidaires. And so the first step is to basically liberate these camps in Rwanda and then across the border in Zaire. And this is done in stages. The thing to understand about these camps is that they quickly wind up being over overrun by the genocidaires, like taken over by them. And so Western countries are, are trying to ship in aid and, and material to, to support the refugee populations. But that aid, the, the, the food aid and shelter, is being commandeered by the folks who are effectively running the camp, who are basically the genocidaires. And so this is an intolerable situation for the Rwandan government to have their mortal enemies getting free Western largesse and, and, and building themselves back up for a possible reinvasion of the country. And so the first thing for the Rwandan government is to basically storm the refugee camps in southern Rwanda and liberate them which they do. The, the what is now referred to the RPF is is now referred to as the RPA, the Rwandan Patriotic Army because they are the army of the new government. Uh, so RPF RPA basically the same thing, really confusing. By early April 1995, this camp in Kibeho is the largest still in Rwanda. It's got somewhere between 80 and 100,000 people. Now remember it's 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 uh, it's a dis- it's, this is a highly disorganized situation, and it's so nobody even really knows how many people are there, which makes figuring out how many people get killed in this incident very difficult. But yeah, somewhere between 80, 80 and 100,000 people are in this camp, and the follow-up UN peacekeeping mission is, uh, is there. There's a Zambian infantry company there, and, and Medicine Sans Frontières is there, and the RPA is maintaining this tight cordon around the camp. They're not allowing anyone in and out except by their permission. And there are genocidaires in the camp, and the Rwandan government wants them gone. So on 17 April, 
they announce that they're going to close this camp and forcibly repatriate everyone in it. And over the course of the next three, four days, they start to do this. They start lining people up. It, the the, the con- conditions are, it, it's hot. It's unpleasant. People are expiring before their eyes. And, and they're trying to basically organize these people to be forcibly removed from the camp and to separate those who they think are genocidaires from the rest of, of the crowd. On April 22nd, this very volatile situation comes to a head. And let me read you what one Australian eyewitness to the events noted, quote, As the processing slowly continued, people became very weary and restless. One casualty we received later told us that they had been so crowded in by the RPA without food or water that they had barely been able to sit. The inter leaders in particular began to become concerned, and quite rightly, as imprisonment or execution were very real possibilities for them. As a result, they began to harass the people and then to attack the crowd with machetes. Their reasons were probably twofold, to create a diversion in order to escape, and to silence potential informers. Whatever the reason, this resulted in panic amongst the crowd, which began pushing against the RPA cordon. The RPA soldiers, fearing a riot, began to shoot into the crowd, and soon most joined in, firing indiscriminately. Their motive soon became less crowd control and more revenge. End quote. No one has any idea how many people died in this because, in part, nobody knows how many people were in the camps. But what follows is those who survived this this event are basically forcibly marched home in not super great conditions. The RPA starts burying people immediately, so it becomes really difficult to, to figure out how many people have been killed. And they give an official count of something on the order of 300 casualties. The UN says more like 2,000. Gerard Prunier counting how many people were probably in the camp, according to his estimates, versus how many people wound up safely and successfully making it back to wherever they were going when they were forcibly repatriated, estimates that somewhere as many as 20 or even 30,000 people might have died during the course of clearing out this whole camp. So again, huge disparities depending on what kind of government you really think is running Rwanda at this point. But the Cabejo massacre is really only the beginning because you have these huge refugee camps, much larger than Cabejo, across the border in Zaire. And that involves going into another country and the geopolitical ramifications of that. And those camps are much more tightly controlled by the genocidaires, by the Interahamwe. And so they're just left to sort of fester there for about another year. And finally, in 1996, the dynamic changes and the Rwandan government decides that they've had quite enough of this, that it's time to deal with it. Now, the stance of the Zaire government fundamentally alters this calculation. So at this point, Zaire is still being run by Mobutu Sese Seko, a.k.a. Mobutu, a.k.a. Joseph Mobutu, a.k.a. The Leopard, blah, blah, blah. He's been around since the 60s. He's ancient. He's dying of cancer, although this is not known at that time. He's been ruling the country for 32 years. And he's been this sort of indomitable presence, but he's also been famously corrupt and he's basically cannibalized his own country and, and established a, a governmental kleptocracy 
in which corruption is the order of the day from the top on down. And he's hollowed out the state to a point that it's a very weak state. Zaire is huge. I mean, again, look at a map and see the size of Zaire, what is today Democratic Republic of Congo, compared to Rwanda or Burundi or Uganda or any of the other countries that we've been talking about. It's a massive country, but a lot of the middle of it is is not heavily inhabited. The capital is all the way in the west in Kinshasa, and the east is uh, not entirely under the government's control. There have been periodic rebellions over the years, including by one man named Laurent Kabila, who we will talk about in just a little bit. And the arrival of these this huge number of refugees on his territory presents Mobutu with a difficult choice. Does he align himself with the, the genocidaires who have fled into his territory and are running these camps? Or does he uh, side with the new government in Kigali in Rwanda against these guys? On the face of it, this is an easy choice. Do you want to go with war criminals who lost a war or guys who aren't war criminals, at least not yet, uh, who won one? So you would think that he would go with, uh, with Kigali and with the RPA. He doesn't. He throws his support behind the Hutus, and he has several reasons for doing this. First, he has a long-standing relationship with the old Hutu-led government in Rwanda that had that had been overthrown during the course of this war, and so that's where his sort of historical allegiances lie. Uh, second, he has various regional alliances. So, for instance, there's an ongoing rivalry between Sudan and Uganda, where they're occasionally openly fighting each other, but mostly backing each other's rebels. And he's been on the Sudanese side, uh, and, and so anti-Uganda. And he considers this new government in in Kigali to be kind of a Ugandan puppet because they all came from Uganda. And so uh, for sort of regional alliance reasons, he doesn't want to support them. Uh, but finally, his dynamic has changed. Remember that uh, Mobutu, most of his reign had been during the Cold War. And so he could just say, look, I'm anti-communist and the West would back him. And he made hay on this for a long time and got a lot of Western backing and largesse over the course of the years. Uh, because he was a stalwart, not communist. And some of the rebels who were fighting against him, including Kabila, uh, were communist. And so he got a lot of support from the CIA and, and from the United States in general. And then the Cold War ends, and all of a sudden the dynamic changes. And the West no longer cares about the fact that he's anti-communist. They care about the fact that he's corrupt and that his country is hollowed out and weak and, and is, uh, his leadership is pretty loathsome. And so they start putting pressure on him to have elections and to actually open up the democratic and political process in Zaire, which hasn't been the case since the 60s. And so all of a sudden he's facing an actual election where he has to appeal to the population and he can't just rig the whole thing and steal it like he always did. And so one of the things he does is, uh, remember how I said how the, the, the Tutsis are uh, kind of the popular ethnic minority to hate in this region? Well, it turns out there's a large Tutsi contingent in eastern Zaire and they've been there since colonial times. 
They historically had ties to Rwanda, but they had been moved either by choice or by force during the Belgian period to Eastern Zaire for sort of economic reasons. And they call themselves the Banyamulenge. Um, the, the very name kind of says what they're trying to do because Banya just means the people from, and Mulenge is, is a, a, a town in Zaire. So they're basically trying to say, we're from Zaire. We're not, we're not Banya Rwanda, we're Banya Mulenge. We are Zairean. But not everyone kind of accepts them as such. And they've had their citizenship granted and then taken away and granted and taken away by the government as it's been expedient. And there's all kinds of questions of property ownership and colonial rights versus post-colonial rights versus, uh, you know, post. So there's a, there's a lot of questions about who owns property, who's a citizen. Uh, and Mobutu's kind of thinking, well, if I make this play where I demonize the Banyu Mulenge and I, I I will get popularity among the other groups in the East and that'll help my election prospects. So there's all these little reasons why, uh, why Mobutu makes this decision. But the end result is he basically picks the wrong horse. And uh, remember the scene in Return of the Jedi where Jabba the Hutt has them all prisoner and he, he announces that they're all going to be thrown into the pit of Sarlacc and executed and Luke Skywalker just starts laughing and says, that's the last mistake you'll ever make. And it's this really haughty, cold and very accurate line. Spoiler alert. That's what happens here. That's basically Paul Kagame. Paul Kagame's like, really? You're going to take, uh, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to support these guys? Well, that, that is the last mistake you'll ever make. Now, Mobutu at this point is kind of a joke in, 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 the region anyway, and there's a large contingent of what the United States likes to sort of euphemistically refer to as new African leaders, a new generation of leaders who are going to be less corrupt and more democratic and uh, more sort of espousing the values that Western countries are looking for them to espouse leaders than their predecessors. And Paul Kagame is one of these, and Yauri Museveni is one of these in, in Uganda, and there's a bunch of others. And all, several of them get together and they say, Mobutu is the problem. He is he is the old Africa incarnate, and he's picked the wrong horse on this, and he's backing these genocidaires. We've got to take him out. And so they launch a rebellion against Mobutu. Now, again, if you look at a map, this looks like it would fail. R- Rwanda is tiny, Uganda's pretty small, and Zaire is huge. But the Zairean state has been hollowed out. Its military hasn't been, you know, a lot of its army officers haven't been paid or they're being paid in a currency that is suffering from mass inflation and is basically worthless. The The, the state is is unusually vulnerable. And so the, the Ugandans and the Rwandans who don't always see eye to eye, st- they, they, they pick a rebel champion that they can both agree on. And it's this guy, Laurent Kabila. Now, Kabila's kind of, not exactly the most inspiring choice. He's been an on-again, off-again rebel since the 60s. He has been around so long that he actually fought briefly with uh, Che Guevara when Che came to the Congo in the 1960s, I believe in 65, to try to foment communist rebellion in Congo. And uh, at that time, Che is 
scathing in his appraisal of Kabila. He calls him a, a womanizer, a shiftless layabout who just likes to drink and party and is totally uncommitted to the cause and is just deeply unreliable. And after a few months, uh, Che actually gives up, leaves Congo, goes back to to Latin America and is eventually executed in 67 in um, in Bolivia. Uh, but, but by a lot of, ca- of accounts... 30 years didn't really change that much as far as Kabila was concerned. And so the idea that he could have done this on his own is pretty laughable. But the Rwandans and the Ugandans are much more organized than their Zairean opposition. And so with Kabila as their sort of front man, their puppet, the, this rebellion starts suddenly sweeping across Zaire. The first step of this, I'm actually getting a little ahead of myself. The first step of this is the RPA storms into these refugee camps. This is 1996. The the RPA storms into these refugee camps that have hundreds of thousands of mostly Hutu refugees from Rwanda in them, and they liberate them. The, The West had sort of been, for the last couple of years, kind of having this difficult decision do we send in food aid and medicines and that sort of thing to these refugee camps, even though we know that they're being controlled by bad actors? And the West's answer has basically been, yes, we want to save lives. We're going to save lives. That's the most important thing. And so they keep sending in this aid. But the 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 Interahamwe remnants who are still there are taking this, they're, they're running these rackets where they control who gets food, uh, who gets resources, and they're trading things on the black market to get weapons so that they can do cross-border attacks back into Rwanda. And so after two years of this, it, this has gotten to the point where, for Kagame, this is completely unacceptable. By the way, uh, Paul Kagame is not actually the president of the country at this point, Uh a guy named Pasteur Bizimungu is, in fact, the president. Bizimungu is a Hutu moderate who was part of this national reconciliation government that was implemented in Rwanda in the aftermath of the genocide. But everyone kind of understands that it's the RPA that has held power for this entire time. And uh, Bizimungu is, is eventually dismissed as president uh, in, a, at the end of the decade and Kagame becomes the the appointed president and then the elected president, and uh, he's been reelected uh, with upwards of ninety five percent of the the vote now twice. And the constitution has just been changed to allow him to run again and possibly again after that, despite the protestations of Samantha Power and various others. So we're just going to pretend that Kagame's running the country, even though at this point he's not technically the president. It's kind of like when Vladimir Putin uh, switched roles with Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, It's kind of like that. Kagame is the man making the decisions. He's the most powerful actor, and the RPA are the ones who have the political power and the military power, and they're the ones making military decisions in the country, not the president. So we're just going to continue to pretend that it's Kagame's country, even though, again, he's not technically the president. So the RPA storms into these refugee camps, and if you are a Kagame fan, he basically solves a problem in, in a week that the West had been unable to solve in two years. Hundreds of thousands of, of refugees 
stomp home having been freed from from the yoke of the Interhamway. If you are not a Kagami fan, this entire episode is another massacre, kind of like the Kabeho massacre, except on a much larger scale. What is clear is that uh, a large portion, possibly most of the refugees, go back to Rwanda at this point. But a substantial fraction of them, still hundreds of thousands of people, flee further into uh, Zaire. And the the RPA basically just goes after them and follows them further in. And then this is kind of how the rebellion starts. You have forces that are Congolese being backed by Uganda and Rwanda. You have Rwandan forces who are not supposed to be there, but they are. You have Ugandan forces who are not supposed to be there, but they are sweeping through the country, meeting almost no resistance. And all of a sudden, it looks like Mobutu is going to go down. And in early, by early 1997, he does, and he hops on a plane as as rebel forces are approaching Kinshasa. He hops on a plane. He flies to somewhere in North Africa, I think Morocco, if I remember correctly, uh, and within months is is dead of cancer. And all of a sudden, the entire world of Central Africa is turned upside down because who's going to run this country now? The rebels sweep in. Laurent Kabila is named the president of the new country. He renames it Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, they replace the flag, they replace all of the, the symbols, and they try to sort of stabilize the country. And for the Rwandans, this is a huge victory. The 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 Hutu genocide heirs are still out there. They're still hiding out in various pockets in Congo. Some of them flee up to Sudan, and they're housed in Juba by the government in Khartoum. Some of them flee elsewhere. Uh, a few of them are camping out in Tanzania, uh, for several years after this, but the bulk of them are, are still in, in Zaire, and they now have no patron to back them because Mobutu is gone. And instead, you have Kabila, who is at this point basically a puppet of the uh, of the Rwandan and Ugandan forces, particularly the Rwandans, who put him in power. Now. As we saw in Uganda in the first episode of this podcast this is not a sustainable situation. Just as when Museveni came into power with the help of these Rwandan Tutsis, so too when when Kabila gets into power in DRC, he comes under pressure to prove that he's really Congolese and is not just the puppet of a foreign army. And so he comes under pressure to remove all these Rwandan military advisors in particular, one of, one of his top advisors is a man named James Kabarebe, who is, uh, today he is the Minister of Defense for Rwanda, and he's basically uh, running military affairs for Kabila. So a few months go by, and Kabila does what Museveni did, except more so. He throws out his Rwandan advisors. He says, thanks thanks so much for, for all that you've done. Uh, you're all fired. You have four days to leave the country. Now, the Rwandans are looking at this, and particularly after Kabila makes some really unfortunate statements about various Tutsi conspiracies and plots and things that make it sound like he's parroting language that the Hutu genocidaires had used before they con- conducted the genocide from 
Kigali's perspective, this is an, uh, this is a total betrayal, and it's security-wise an unacceptable turn of events. How unacceptable? Well, let me read you this little passage from Gerard Prunier's book, Africa's World War, about Kabarebe bidding farewell. I just, I just can't not read this. It's, it's amazing. Quote, There was one last little incident with their former chief as James Kabarebe came to bid goodbye to the president. The bodyguard in Kabila's office, which until recently had been made up of Rwandese Tutsi, had been changed to Balubakat soldiers. The colonel who commanded them asked Kabarebe to leave his sidearm at the guard's desk before entering the president's office, which he did. But the colonel had a doubt at the last minute and asked Kabarebe to let himself be frisked. Commander James reluctantly agreed and was found to be carrying a small thirty-two caliber pistol in his boot. The colonel confiscated it, fuming. Kabarebe grinned and said he had to be careful about his security. As he was about to step into Kabila's office, the colonel shouted at him to take off his beret, saying that out of respect he had to appear bareheaded in front of the president. Kabarebe refused and a scuffle ensued. In the scuffle, the beret was torn off his head, and a very small twenty-two caliber automatic fell to the floor. Had Commander James intended to assassinate Kabila? It seemed likely, even though he denied it heatedly. In fact, it really scared us, my informant told me. It showed how daring these fellows were. He did not have a chance of coming out there alive if he had shot the president. And yet he was willing to try it, end quote. And that's not even close to being the craziest thing that Kabarebe does, because four days later, the Rwandans decide to go to war. Now, this is 1997. The plot that the Rwandans dream up, this is mostly Kabarebe's doing. He is really gung-ho about this. By all accounts, Kagame is very reticent about this scheme, but Kabarebe kind of browbeats him into it. And we've already talked a lot on this podcast about how ballsy Paul Kagame is. So if he's not sure about this, you have a sense that something big is about to happen. Here's their their plan. I mean, it sounds like something out of, you know, The Expendables 4. It, it just doesn't sound real. While the main contingent of the Rwandan army starts to sweep in from the east just as they had before to put Kabila in power in the first place... Commander James Kabarebe and and crew command your plane, a military plane, fly across Zaire, now DRC, and land at a military base near Kinshasa. They then take over the military base. Kabarebe knows, because he had recently been <laughs> basically in charge of, of the Congolese army, that these soldiers haven't been paid or fed in months and that they're basically not willing to or are able to do much of anything uh, unless someone promises to arm and equip them and, uh, and pay them. And so he lands in this base, and he basically talks these guys into switching sides and, and aligning with him against the government in Kinshasa. And he does this in a few hours, and basically decapitates and, and, and commandeers the greater part of the military that's supposed to be defending the government against invaders. And then they march on Kinshasa, and they're just about to succeed. And it looks like Kabila's going to be thrown out, and another puppet's going to be put in, and this is all going to be over just like that. Now, 
The SADC, the Southern African Development Community, which is basically South Africa, Namibia, Angola, a bunch of Zambia, Zimbabwe, uh, a bunch of other countries, have an emergency meeting trying to figure out, because the rest of the region is just looking on horrified by what's about to happen. And there's an emergency meeting, and they're all basically divided over what to do because some people are really sympathetic to the Rwandans and supportive of what they're doing and some aren't. And the Angolans don't show up to this thing and no one knows what the Angolans are going to do. But all of a sudden, just as it looks like Kabarebe's gambit is going to work and they're going to just lightning blitzkrieg take over the whole country again, the Angolans arrive, they invade in huge numbers, and the Zimbabweans come in with them. And there's this huge, and in they come with you know helicopter gunships, and Kabarebe loses half of his men in two days and is forced into a bloody retreat. Meanwhile, the Rwandan rebels are still sweeping in from the east, and the battle lines are hardening. And to understand why the... Angolans decide to intervene when they do. You have to understand Angola is itself dealing with its own civil war that has been going on on and off since 1975 between the government and, well, several rebel groups, but mostly one called UNITA. And the government was a communist-aligned government, and UNITA was a not-communist rebel group. And Mobutu had given them sanctuary and so they kept whenever they were in trouble, they could flee across the border, and uh, and Mobutu would be there for them. And so now that Mobutu has fallen, Unita is still there, and the the Angolans want to make sure that there's no way that a new government that's put in place will do anything that they don't want it to do. And they figure if we can intervene to save Kabila from the Rwandans, he will be our puppet, not the Rwandans' puppet. And so they intervene massively. And the Zimbabweans intervene because they have business interests. Zimbabwean elites who are close to President Robert Mugabe have business interests in the mining that takes place in mostly Katanga province, but but various parts of DRC. And so they want to protect their business interests, and so they intervene in a big way. And the Rwandans are beaten back, but they're not finished by any stretch, and they're still taking control of a large portion of the eastern part of the country, and the Ugandans have come in with them, and they've taken a portion of, of the eastern country. And you can just see this moment where... It goes from being a Rwanda versus Congo thing, a Kigali versus Kinshasa thing, to an everybody is involved thing. So here's the thing about DRC. It's weak, but it's rich in resources. And a lot of countries have some kind of economic or material interest in what goes on there. And if they don't, one of their rivals does. And over the course of the next six years of bloody, brutal warfare that just ravages the country and leads to up to 5 million excess deaths, no one really knows how many people died in the course of this conflict, not just from being killed, but, but from lack of food, medicine, starvation, uh, disease, etc. Um, but the high estimates are... The number often thrown around is 5 million 
dead over the course of this war. And the number of countries that get involved is staggering. Gerard Pernier lists 10 pages just of acronyms of various, mostly forces that are either militias or rebel groups or armies that are involved in this conflict. 10 pages. Nine countries send military forces, and many others are involved, at least politically, backing somebody or something. The Chadians intervene. The Sudanese start doing airstrikes against Ugandan-backed rebels because they don't like the Ugandans. Uh, the Angolans and, uh, and Zimbabweans, uh, I'd already said, intervene. And of course, the Ugandans and the Rwandans are there. The Burundians are, are dealing... I mean, Burundi, people forget, had basically a mini version of what happened in Rwanda. And, and uh, something on the order of 300,000 people were killed. And they have rebels and refugees that have fled uh, the country into eastern Congo. And so they're interested about their security. And they get involved in this conflict as well. Uh, Central African Republic gets involved politically, indirectly. Uh, Republic of Congo gets involved indirectly. Zambia gets involved. The Namibians are, are kind of in, marching in lockstep for historical uh, alliance reasons with the Angolans. So the Namibians, who don't give a crap about what goes on in, in, in Congo in terms of their own national interests, their own economic interests, and certainly their own security interests, they wind up sending troops in to defend the government. The, the, the South Africans are sort of politically involved, even though they don't want to, they don't actually have much skin in the game. Uh, and, and the Zambians are trying to uh, come up with, uh, with a peace accord because they want to play political peacemaker, even while they have ties to UNITA which means that they're kind of embroiled into this conflict as well. And the Libyans are involved. They're backing the Chadian forces who go in, get, 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 thoroughly and quickly whooped. Uh, and, and there's spillover. You have Congolese rebels backed by Uganda that are going into Central African Republic and committing war crimes. In fact, one of the major uh, rebel leaders in Congo, who winds up running for president in 2006 and almost winning despite accusations of cannibalism, we'll get there, don't worry, uh, winds up going to The Hague for crimes that his forces committed in Central African Republic. And so there's this spillover into all of the neighbors and this debilitating war develops. And the tragic thing about the war is that almost none of it is really necessary. It's like a country intervenes because they're worried that a rival might get a leg up on them or some interest or, or the president's friends have a mining interest and they want to make sure they don't lose, uh, that their side isn't defeated where they'll lose access to their, their mining contract, this sort of thing. This is a war that materializes out of state weakness and mutual the sort of habit that all of these countries have that I've just mentioned of sort of financing each other's rebels, where it's like, it's like, oh, you, you have a, you have a quarrel with this, this president has a quarrel with this president. Well, I'll finance your opposition party or your rebel group or, or, or something like that, or I'll let them have safe Harbor in in my country, or I won't even, you know, I, I won't have the capacity to stop them because my state is too weak. So it's really a story of state weakness, but basically everybody's kind of drawn into this conflict in Congo, even though they don't want to be, even though they don't really care. It's really only the Rwandans and uh, that, and, and perhaps the Burundians who have any sort of 
immediate, direct, necessary security interest uh, in getting involved in this conflict. But basically, everybody else gets in out of fear of what might happen. The Angolans have this little uh, region, a sliver of land that's actually divided um, from the, the the rest of the country called Cabinda, where half of their oil revenues come from. And Angola is a very oil-rich country. And they're constantly worried about Cabinda trying to secede. And they were worried that the prospects of another revolution and the collapse of the Congolese government might mean that Cabinda might uh, become uh, an open question as to who owns it and sovereignty and territorial integrity might fall apart. And the Rwandans are talking like the state of Congo might be broken up. And so everybody is operating out of fear and loss aversion. And basically this ruinous civil war happens that didn't have any real reason to happen. And it goes on for six years. There's, there's a peace accord in 1999, which allows the less interested parties to start pulling out. So by 01, the the uh, the Chadians are out of the game and the Namibians are out of the game. But the rest of the parties keep fighting. And when they stop fighting directly, they start just fighting by proxy. And then everybody gets material interest. The longer they stay in the country, the more they have material interest in staying. So the, the Rwandans and the Ugandans in particular are getting rich off of resources, off of diamonds, off of coltan, off of tin, off of, uh, off of uh, a whole slew of other resources. And they have now have ties to militias that are extracting these resources and financing themselves and giving the Rwandans and the Ugandans a cut of the profits. And it gets to the point where by 1999, the Rwandans and the Ugandans are backing different guys. And so they wind up shooting at each other. And these former allies wind up enemies, not for any ideological reason, but purely for economic interest. It's heartbreaking to see because all of it is just total venality, a lack of sovereignty and, and, and clear definition of who controls what, a lack of, of the state's ability to enforce the rule of law, and this sort of loss aversion, uh, kind of na- uh, security vacuum. And the parties fill it with this ruinous war that a lot of people liken to the 30 years war in, in Europe. A war fought by outsiders that is just ruinous to the territory they're in. But nobody, everybody seems sort of drawn into it, almost beyond their ability to control. Their, and it just goes on and on for years. Finally, in 02, there's a, an agreement in Sun City to sort of end the war, except in the East, where the war actually winds up getting worse because as it becomes clear that there's going to be a peace accord of some kind, the conflict for who's going to be controlling this mine or that mine heats up, and so massacres continue, and they actually get worse for a while. And all of this eventually leads up to the 2006 elections, where Congolese, it's gotten peaceful enough that they can actually vote, and there's an election in 2006. And... By this point, the country is completely destroyed. And in the course of this, I forgot to even mention, in 2001, Laurent Kabila gets assassinated. And to this day, no one knows who did it. They, they know the name of the guy who did it, although they're not even sure that, that he was apprehended and, and killed while leaving the scene, although there are claims that he did. But why he did it, who, uh, who authorized him to do it, is not at all clear. Naturally, 
the Rwandans were blamed because, you know, it's the sort of thing they would do and they're, they're easy bad guys and everybody who would, uh, and they would have a natural desire to, to want him, uh, to want him out. But the, the, the official report by the Congolese government, well, first of all, they deny that he died for a, a full day afterwards. They actually have his body moved by ambulance and then flown out of the country for medical treatment, even though he died instantly because he was shot in the back of the head by one of his bodyguards. Then after a duration of time, enough time that it is announced and solidified that his 29-year-old son, Joseph, is going to take over the country. And everyone's just sort of like, oh, 29-year-old, he'll be easy to control. What could go wrong? Um, it's announced that uh, a government inquiry says that it was a Ugandan-Rwandan conspiracy that they united to assassinate Kabila, which the, the Ugandans and the Rwandans immediately point out, the Ugand- we're shooting at each other. We're not agreeing on anything at the moment. <laughs> we would never be able to pull this off. So it definitely wasn't the both of us doing it. And there's a, there's a side theory that it was the Angolans, that they figured that Kabila it would was too difficult to control and that they would want someone more pliable like his 29 year old son in power or somebody else. Um, but this seems sort of suspicious because they intervened in order to keep Kabila in power in the first place. So would they really assassinate him after, after several years of warfare and, and debilitating and, and expensive conduct to, and conflict in, in Congo to, to keep him in power? Uh, it just doesn't seem likely. But in any case, Joseph Kabila takes over as president. In 2006, he runs for election, and uh, they have to change the constitution because he's so young that he's not initially eligible to run. So they lower the, pres- the age of, of the presidency that you have to be, uh, I think, from 35 to 30 because he wasn't quite 35 in 2006. Um, which kind of puts things in perspective because I'm 33 at the time of this recording, and... Uh, to take over a country, especially a country in this kind of condition, at age 29 is something. But by all accounts, Joseph Kabila is a, a smooth political operator, and he's quickly able to sort of stabilize uh, support and backing for his government, from, both regionally and internationally. He charms Western actors. Uh, money starts coming in. Uh, mining contracts start coming in. And... Uh, by 2006, he's, he's kind of seen as almost indispensable. And in the election, which is generally regarded as a free and fair election that takes place, and the, the international community invested huge amounts of resources in it, uh, half a billion dollars were spent. The entirety of a, a UN peacekeeping force is put in place, 17,000 strong, and they're deployed entirely on election day. This is 2006. And uh, Kabila wins the election. He doesn't win outright he uh he he's forced into a runoff by a man named Jean-Pierre Bemba who commanded a, a rebel group in Equateur and has the support of a lot of ex Mobutu types and uh the campaign between them is this it's free and fair but it's shrill and you can see the sort of damage that the country's war has done to its its politics Kabila is naturally scared of being assassinated because his father was assassinated. Bemba uh, is uh, eventually goes on trial in The Hague. Uh, he's accused of cannibalism on the campaign trail uh, and not entirely without reason. I mean, obviously, Jean-Pierre Bemba 
rich businessman playboy did not actually eat people. But his troops were widely believed to have uh, carried out acts of cannibalism in Ituri province while they were fighting uh, with other militia groups in in the eastern Congo. And so uh, you actually have a candidate having to deny charges of of cannibalism on the campaign trail, which is a scandal, I would say. (laughs) <laughs> so definitely a blow to the campaign and uh, and yet he still get in the runoff he still gets 40 percent of the vote but also uh, he's used to these sort of hard power politics that 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 have come to symbolize what congolese politics are about after years and years of war and and dictatorship and, and uh, first economic ruin and then and then ruin by warfare and so eventually bemba winds up being he, first, he doesn't want to concede defeat, but he eventually does. And uh, he winds up showing up in Kinshasa as a senator with an armed guard of several hundred strong. And of course, Kabila is not going to stand for this because Kabila is uh, he's from the east. He doesn't really have a, a, a political constituency. During the election, he's, he's very unpopular in Kinshasa and in the west of the country. Most of those people vote for Bemba. It's mostly the east where they vote for, uh, for Kabila. Kabila is afraid for his own safety. And so he has his own presidential guard get into a huge shootout with Bemba's guard. And Bemba's guard is routed. Uh, Bemba seeks... Uh, seeks refuge in, uh, I think, the South African embassy. He winds up fleeing to Europe and is eventually arrested and sent to The Hague, where he sits to this day. Um, Kabila winds up seizing control of the country and and ruling by increasingly autocratic means, and Kabila is still the president of the country. He is, uh, well, it's not clear as of this moment if he's going to run for a third term, but uh, he hasn't said he won't. Meanwhile, the Rwandans who really kind of sparked this whole thing. They still have militias to this day that are active in the East and all kinds of trading networks. Rwanda in the 2000s was one of the, uh, the biggest exporters, for example, of uh, a mineral called coltan, which is uh, common in a lot of electronics. Your cell phone probably has a small amount of it. Um, Rwanda has no coltan. Congo does. So they're clearly just getting this stuff from Eastern Congo and then shipping it to Rwanda and then and, and then exporting it out of the country. So they still have a lot of influence. And the 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 Interahamwe, the 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 Genesideres, they they formed a, a rebel group called the FDLR, the Forces Democratic for the Liberation of, of of Rwanda. And they're still out there to this day. And the Rwandans have said all along, as long as these guys are here, we're going to be involved. So Rwanda has this security interest, but they also have this economic interest. They kind of came in for security reasons and they stayed because they could get rich. Um, everyone winds up looking bad as a result of this conflict. During the Cold War, people were fighting for mostly ideological reasons, or at least they said they were, and it seemed plausible. But no one fought for ideological reasons during the Second Congo War. They fought for economic ones or pure security ones. This was a war where the veneer was kind of stripped away. There was no glory in the Second Congo War. Why did I do this podcast? Why did I... It's almost an hour for this episode, and it will be by the time I'm done. Uh, 
and another I don't know, 30 to 40 minutes for the for round one. Uh, why did I want to sort of delve into this history? First of all, because this is a shockingly huge war that gets very little press in, in Western country. I mean, 5 million people may have died in this thing, possibly much less, but, but you know, even if it was 2 million, it's still a, a huge war. It, it involved nine militarily involved and several more politically involved countries. Like much of the African continent was somehow involved in this war. And uh, although the end of the war wound up being not hugely different from the beginning, its effect is, is enormous uh, in terms of, of these countries and and what what happened to them and how they were led there was all kinds of fallout from this thing and all you know the rwanda genocide tipped off this thing in congo and so many countries were affected by this i'd mentioned for example that the zimbabweans went in because they had some mining interests that they wanted to protect some contracts that they didn't want to lose they wind up spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this thing and they wind up with nothing to show for it they they finally have to sort of withdraw in disgrace in the early 2000s. The country is bankrupted. The World Bank is scandalized. They cut off loans, uh, and uh, and as a result of this, Zimbabwe continues its its political slide into into chaos and hyperinflation, uh, seizures of white owned farms, uh, dramatically increase largely because the government was broke, and that was just Zimbabwe. You've got stories of various different countries throwing a lot in and not getting a lot out or or maybe a few elites got a lot out but but other people didn't uh all across the continent and so i just think this is something that should be i don't know popularly known and so even though this is a very reductive and simplistic history of an incredibly complicated war uh, I, I just feel like having a sense of what it was and why people were fighting i mean fundamentally this was a war between, or it was basically Rwanda versus the world, if you will. The Rwandans and the Ugandans backing various rebels, trying to overthrow uh, a government that was supposed to be their puppet and make it their puppet again. And then the Angolans coming in to defend that government so that it could be their puppet. And then everybody else got involved basically as a result of somebody else being interested or or, or, or some other material reason. But... I think it's important to sort of understand the conflict and why it happened. But there are several lessons to be drawn from it, and they're not necessarily the ones that are reported in the media. Rwanda is seen as this clarion call for intervention, but Rwanda had loads of intervention before, during, and after the genocide. You had political intervention, you had humanitarian intervention, you had military intervention, you had a UN peacekeeping force, but none of this intervention was very good. Most of it actually made the situation worse, not better. You had well well-intentioned intervention that was ineffective because the parties were indifferent or they didn't know enough or, or or they just made mistakes you had nefarious intervention like the french with operation turquoise where they had a clear political interest and that that interest ran counter to what was the clear humanitarian need at the time which was stopping the genocide um you you had food aid going into the refugee camps in in eastern zaire after the conflict that eventually led the uh the Rwandan army to invade and in the meantime helped out the guys who had carried out the genocide and so you had you had lots of intervention but the the question is not should we intervene but what will work what could have happened that would have stopped this 
Maybe if you'd had a peacekeeping force where people actually cared more, but that would have required a lot more, uh, a, a lot more of a military commitment than Western countries willing to to give in a post-Somalia environment. Maybe if the the French had not seen fit to help the keep the government that was in power in power before the genocide and during the genocide. Maybe this would have been over quicker. Maybe if, if Rwanda had literally been ignored, it would have been in better shape than it actually was. But fundamentally, I, I think that if there's one takeaway lesson, it's that whatever your solution is, it's got to give people a stake. Like, Rwanda had was a zero-sum game. The idea of a power-sharing government, government between uh, a minority group that was much more well-organized and powerful and a majority group that would, would have won every election if it was voted on all along ethnic lines is really difficult to... It was, it was really zero-sum game politics. Either the RPF was going to be running the country or they weren't, uh, with dire consequences for a huge number of people depending on which faction won. And you have these cross-border ethnic identity issues where the, the, the Rwandan government, once the Tutsis end the genocide and take over the Rwandan government, they kind of become the, the, the standard bearer of Tutsis everywhere. And so they're constantly intervening in Congo to protect the, the Tutsi minorities there. But that makes the Tutsi minorities there even more hated. And so they have this kind of love-hate relationship with their benefactors in Kigali. Uh, it's really more about making sure that everyone's a citizen and that everyone has equal rights as individuals. Like if you, if you can do that, then a lot of the incentives for these actors that behave as abominably as they did disappear. And none of that was on display uh, in this region in the early, you know, early to mid 1990s. Another lesson I'd say is that each country should be viewed as, as unique. The situation in Zaire and, and the situation in Rwanda, I mean, there are, you know, I look at, at, for instance, the conflict in Syria and Iraq that are ongoing today, and I see a lot of parallels between that and, and the Second Congo War. But, but they're just that. They're, they're parallels. They're not identical things. They're, they're just similarities or, or, or trends or, or, or just sort of typical, like, oh, a human being is behaving in this way because of this dynamic. Each country is individual. I mean, Rwanda and Burundi have a lot of similarities, but you know their political cultures and histories are, are, are distinct, even despite that. And uh, and so each country has its own it needs to be taken in, in its own way. Rwanda, as it was, will not come again. Congo, as it was, you know, a lot of these issues will will be passed down to future generations. But this historical moment won't come again, and it should be taken for what it was at that moment that country at that moment, given that history, and then pass down to that country at this moment as far as making policy. And so uh, painting with a broad brush and saying, oh, this is how you know, post-colonial African countries go is, is really not the way to look at this. Like Rwanda shouldn't be a clarion call for anything but Rwanda. It just is what it is. Because Rwanda happened doesn't mean that we should do something in Syria or not do something in Syria. And then finally... You've got to look at it. I mean, you've got to look at at politics from multiple levels of perspective. It's one thing to look at it from the national perspective, like Kigali wants this and Kinshasa wants that. It's another thing to look at it like the the Tutsis want this and the Hutus want that. And and these things matter. But there's also individual actors here. Like 
if Paul Kagame was not Paul Kagame, it's difficult to, I mean, you know, there were a lot of, of really hard-nosed guys in the RPF, but it's difficult to imagine the RPF rallying after it had, it had fallen to pieces in, in 90 and 91 uh, and winding up becoming this fighting force that, that overcame French opposition, overthrew the government in, in Kigali, overthrew the government in Kinshasa, started the Second Congo War. Like, it's difficult to imagine any of that happening if Kagame had not been who he was. He's an individual actor. You know, if James Kabarebe hadn't been, you know, so hot-headed about flying a plane to, to, to try and take over the, the, the Congolese military, you know, maybe the Second Congo War doesn't start the way it does, or maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't become this, this fraught uh, proxy battle that goes on for years and years. Who knows? And so there's these individual actors. And, and there's also, you know, this guy has a mining contract. And he's friends with the president. That kind of thing influenced the decision-making of presidents. And so you have to, to look at the sort of economic angle as well. A lot of times people are saying they're operating for political reasons or for you know, humanitarian reasons or to protect their, their tribe from this other tribe or their ethnic group from this other group. But a lot of times they're just, they just want to control the, the outflow of diamonds or coltan or something uh, to make sure that they get a cut of that. And so it's all about elites and it's about power and it's about, you know, economic and analyzing the economic flows. We talked about this in the Ukraine podcast in episode 15 about how in eastern Ukraine, a lot of these these rebels were just the guys who were in charge of the industries that were going to lose out to European competition if if Ukraine signed a trade deal with the European Union uh, or an economic cooperation deal. And, and kind of the same thing is true with Congo. It's like, follow the money, follow the, the resources. Who's controlling these things? Who benefits from these things? That had a lot of... Uh, that had a lot of impact, you know, and who's backing who's rebels just for expediency, not so much ideological reasons or, or, or even just personal enmity, like this president doesn't like that president. So uh, you, you sort of have to analyze things from that individual level, too, and that gets really difficult and complicated, but uh, that's kind of how it's done. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope you've learned something from it. I hope that it was entertaining to listen to for an hour. If you have any thoughts, any feedback, please uh, contact me on my website. It's J-O-E-G-E-N-I dot com. That's JoeGenie dot com slash contact. And you can find the podcast online at JoeGenie dot com slash podcast. There's an, uh, an associated blog, which surprise, surprise is JoeGenie dot com slash blog. And you can subscribe to the podcast for free in the iTunes store by searching for Ambassadors at Large. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with a new episode real soon. Bye-bye.